Well, good morning. Uh, the, the same could be said of uh, dear friend Thomas. Um, man, we've been friends for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. But it seems like we've been friends a lot longer than that. Um, as Thomas said, walking through things together, uh, walking, living life together. Uh, I can say there were moments that were probably the lowest of the low for me and for my wife. Difficult moments, trials that we went through that Thomas and Libby were there for. Uh, they walked with us through those moments. And those, those friends that stick closer than a brother... Those are our miracles sent by God, right? Those friends are the friends that you cherish. And so when Thomas said, hey, can you come up and speak and hang out with us? I said, yes, we're there. We're making it happen for sure. We're there. And we have so many connections to so many of you, even at this church already. You are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, uh, the, the blood of Jesus uh, binds us together in a deeper way than even our biological relatives who are not saved. So you are our family. Uh, you are our friends. You are blood uh, relatives in Christ. You are brothers and sisters, and so it is so encouraging to be with you all and uh, to know some of you from California, to know some of you from ministry experience, from school experience. Um, I actually was uh, um, in Bruce Groves's youth ministry uh, way back when, and those of you who know Bruce know the ways that God can use him. I, I can tell you right now, I would not be here loving Jesus and walking with him if it hadn't been for that man. My parents uh, split up when I was in 10th grade, and uh, there was a very clear defining moment for me of do I trust God and follow him or do I say, throw it all away and live however you want to live. And Bruce was there in my corner as a father figure to me, as my dad had left, and uh, I, I love you, Bruce. I know, I know everyone in this room loves you as well, but I just, I praise the Lord for you, and I want to give God glory for the way that he has used you in my life to bring me to where I am today. So thank you, Bruce, and, and thank you all at ABF who love your pastors who love Bruce and love Thomas and encourage them and pray for them and encourage their wives and pray for them as well. Uh, invite them over, uh, have them over to your house, um, love on them, care for them. Uh, they have a difficult job, a joyous job for sure, but a difficult job being a pastor. So I, I praise the Lord for those of you who are just submitting with joy and gladness to them and loving them. So it is a privilege to be here. It is a joy to open God's word with you this morning. So if you have your copy of God's word, let's turn to Mark chapter five, Mark chapter five. And while you're turning there, uh, Thomas told me that Fourth of July is a really fun experience for their family here and for uh, Idaho, for uh, Boise, which uh, apparently the correct pronunciation is Boise. So uh, I, I always say Boise and, and people look at me very funny and, oh, you're not from around here, are you? So Boise, uh, uh, I hear Fourth of July is a really fun time to hang out with friends and family. It is for our family as well in Southern California. Uh, we take our kids to a, a big church that, that shoots off fireworks over this hillside. And we normally get there around five o'clock. We have a little picnic dinner and, 
And then we wait. We play that waiting game for the sun to go down, right? You wait, you wait. You bring some games for the kids to play, and they always ask, it's the, whether it's in the car, are we there yet? Whether it's uh, watching, waiting for the fireworks, watching the, the sun go down, are we there yet? Is it time yet? And by, by the time the sun has finally gone down, and we've waited so long to see these fireworks, some of my kids will say, can we just go home now? Can we, can we just, like, we don't need the fireworks anymore. Can I go to bed? Because it's so late. The waiting game just goes on and on and on. It's tough to wait in life. There are joyous things to wait for. There's joyous things to wait for, like uh, waiting at the airport, knowing that your friend is going to come to pick you up. You give him a big hug. You finally get to see him and you haven't seen them for years. And it's a joyous thing to wait for. Waiting for uh, so many things in life that you're anticipating, whether big things like relationships and friends, whether even the, the simplest of joys of, of knowing that your, your television show, your favorite TV show is, is coming out with a new season and, and you get that notification on your phone that says it's out, you can watch it, and waiting can be really fun. But what about the moments when you're waiting? You get a phone call from the doctor about a test that you took to see if that tumor was cancerous or not. Maybe some of you in this room are waiting for your marriage to be at a place where it's reconciled again. You're waiting for God to work. You're wondering, God, why haven't you shown up? Even the scripture that we read this morning, the psalmist was waiting. God, we have placed our trust in you and it seems like you've abandoned us. Maybe you're waiting for God to open your womb, and you've been praying for years and years, decades. God, please, we have a desire to have children, and it's just not happening. God, please, you wait and you wait. What do you do in those moments? How are we to think about those moments? What are we to do with our view of God in those moments? What is God doing in those moments of waiting, of despair, of wonder, of hopelessness? Well, this morning, I believe that we will meet some figures in our, our scripture passage in Mark chapter five that will enable us to know how we should think of God, what we should think in those moments of waiting and what God is doing when it seems like he has completely abandoned us. These are deep things. These are deep realities. So we need to ask God's blessing on our time. So would you pray with me? Before we dive into God's word together to ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we ask that you would be pleased to grow in us a supernatural trust that would not make sense to the world around us. Grow in us a a love for Christ that would transcend circumstances. Grow in us a trust in Christ That would be such an anchor that when the storms of this life come, when it looks like you have abandoned us, we can cling to what we know to be true. And God, I pray that we would learn this morning how to do that, why we can do that, what you are up to in these moments. Knowing that you love us, you are working for our good and for our greatest joy. Even when it doesn't seem like it, especially when it doesn't seem like it. So, Father, we ask for the impossible. We need your spirit's help. So, Holy Spirit, be pleased, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 
119 to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding from your word. Our fleshly eyes will not comprehend anything that we need to know from Mark 5 this morning. So, Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Be our teacher. Point us to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 5, we're going to meet a, a number of individuals in this text. And I just want to walk through the narrative and pull out some implications for our lives. So we begin in verse uh, 21. Jesus is crossing over again in the boat. This is Mark chapter 5, verse 21. He's crossing over again, crossing over the Sea of Galilee in a boat to the other side. And a large crowd is gathered around him and he is staying by the seashore. He's crossing over again. If you go back to the beginning of Mark chapter 5, uh, you'll read that there was a demon-possessed man. Matthew tells us that it was actually two demon-possessed men that were there on the side of the Sea of Galilee that met Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus uh, spoke with them and healed them uh, of being demon-possessed. And then even before that, at the end of Mark Mark chapter 4, you see that Jesus uh, stilled the storm. You remember that passage? Caught in the middle of a hurricane. The disciples think we're not making it out alive. And they say to Jesus, do you even care that we're perishing? Do you even care? You must not care. So they're going back and forth on the Sea of Galilee. First, they're in the boat going across the sea and they're caught in this hurricane. And they finally make it over. I don't think that they thought they were going to live through that hurricane. They make it over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and Peter and Andrew, just brothers, uh, worn out from rowing and and thinking that they were going to die. This was their last night on earth. Jesus calms the sea. They get to the other side. And in my sanctified imagination, I like to think of Peter and Andrew just saying professional fishermen. Just saying, that's the last time I'm riding in a boat. And you can kind of see them as they're getting off of the boat, getting onto the other side of the Sea of Galilee, stepping onto the sand. They kind of get out of the boat. Man, I will never get back into a boat again. And then Mark 5 tells us two demon-possessed men are running at them. Matthew tells us that they were naked and they're crazy. They're bleeding. They're, they're demonically uh, possessed. And so I just, I picture Peter stepping over. He sees them and he goes, nope, back into the boat. Here we go. We're not, we're, we're not going back. Just constant trial after trial after trial. So here we go again, back to the other side. Jesus heals those two demon possessed men, goes right back over. And the disciples must be thinking, what are we going to see next? Following this man is insanity. What are we going to see next? Well, it doesn't take long to figure out what we're going to see. Verse 22, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus comes up and on seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and he begged him earnestly over and over again, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. My baby girl is dying. Please. Come and lay your hands on her that she will get well and live. We don't know the inflection of this man's voice. We don't know how he is saying what he is saying. But I'm a, I'm a father. Many of you are dads as well. And you know that you would do anything. You would do anything to protect your kids. This, this is the last hope. She's at the point of death. She is as good as dead. If you don't come, she's dying. This is the last hope that he has. Will Jesus say yes? 
Verse 24, he goes with him. You have to believe that when Jesus hears Jairus' request and he says, I'll go with you. Some place in his heart and Jairus' heart just opens up with hope. The Messiah is coming to take care of the problem that my daughter has. He's coming to heal her. She's going to make it. She's going to live. He says, I'll go with you. So he gets up, he goes, he walks to Jairus' house, and a large crowd is following Jesus and Jairus and the disciples, pressing in specifically on Jesus. And it's here that we meet another individual. So we have Jairus, knowing his daughter is at the point of death, pleading with Jesus to come heal his, his daughter. We meet, as Jesus is going to Jairus' house, we meet a woman. Verse 25, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, internal bleeding, had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all. In fact, she became worse. She had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She could not stop the bleeding. She didn't know what to do. She had gone to doctors. They hadn't helped her. In fact, they had made her worse. It's very interesting because in Luke's account, Of this narrative, Luke doesn't mention anything about the doctors making her worse, which is interesting because you remember what Luke's occupation was, right? He's a doctor. Well, this was a crazy uh, infection. Nobody really could have treated it. So let's just say she went to doctors and that's all. We don't say and they really messed up. So Mark's the one that has to tell us, no, they made her worse. They made her worse. No one can heal her. Nobody can help her. And so she says, She thinks, verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, that if she just goes behind him and touches his cloak, verse 28, she thinks, if I could just touch his garments, I will get well. If I could just touch his garments. There's a little bit of some aspect of mysticism here. If I could just touch his garments, it'll heal me. There'll be power. That's all I need to do. And there's an aspect of faith that we're going to see Jesus is going to pull out of her heart. So she does. She touches his garment in verse 29. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And Jesus also felt something immediately. Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Power had gone forth. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we read that word power. It's the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite. This something uh, that's like dynamite had just proceeded forth from Jesus. And he turns around, he stops everyone from pressing in on him. And he says, who touched me? Now, you have to remember where Jesus is. He's in the middle of the crowd. If you go back to verse 24, the the huge crowd, large crowd, uh, Mark says, is pressing in on Christ. And in the middle of them pressing in as they're walking, Jesus says, everybody stop. I need to know who touched me. This would be like uh, when I was growing up, I I went to... uh, A lot of rock shows, a lot of rock concerts. Uh, My brother Tim Plaster can relate. Went to a lot of rock shows. And uh, when there are no seats, you just stand on the ground and the band starts playing. You just kind of all smush together, right? Just all everybody crumpled in on each other. I'm very thankful that I'm tall in those moments because I can kind of sit above everyone else and and I can breathe some uh, not B.O. infected air that everybody else is breathing in those moments. But I'm just kind of sitting above it and I'm okay. It would be like 
in that moment, as in the middle of the, the band's set, to say, hey, everybody stop. Who's touching me? The answer is everyone, right? Everyone is physically touching you. All of their sweat is touching you. You're in the middle of this mass of people. Everybody's touching you. This is kind of a dumb question. And his disciples think that. Verse 31, his disciples said to him, uh, you, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you're asking who touched me? They, this is why they're constantly saying, who is this guy? He can heal the demons. He can get the demons out. He can stop the storm. And then he asks a question that seems really dumb. Everyone's touching you, Jesus. But we know this isn't a dumb question. This is a purposeful and planned question. Jesus is going to do something here in this moment. He looks around. He sees the woman who had done this. The woman's afraid. She's trembling. She's aware of what had happened. And she comes before him and falls down before Jesus. And she tells him the whole truth. What is the truth that she's explaining to Jesus? Why did she show up in secret? Uh, She would have been ceremonially unclean because of her uh, ailment, because of what was going on. She would have been physically, ceremonially unclean. She wouldn't have been able to touch anybody, hang out with anybody. She would have been unclean until this problem stopped. She couldn't fellowship with anyone. She couldn't associate with anyone. She couldn't be with anybody. But for 12 years, she's been hanging out with people. She's been covering up. She hasn't been sharing this. She's been lying maybe to a certain extent with friends and family so that she can maintain that relationship. She has covered it up hasn't told anyone except for the doctors and maybe even there she's gone outside of Israel to get help because she doesn't want people in Israel to know or maybe far uh, beyond the the home city the, the hometown she just doesn't want anyone in her circle of friends and family to know she's been covering it up that's why she goes in secret she wants to be anonymous and Jesus is going to call her out in front of everyone that's why she's terrified I'm going to have to own up to what I did. I'm going to have to own up to what happened. I'm going to have to own up maybe even to feeling like I really messed up on going to these doctors who, who harmed me and placing my trust in them. She's going to have to own up to all of this, but she does. She goes before Jesus and she tells him the whole truth. She tells him everything, the doctors, the amount of money, the pain that she was going through, the loss that she experienced, the hurt that she went through, the hopelessness for 12 years. She tells him everything. Jesus planned this. This is why he said, who touched me? Who touched me? He wants to call this out. What happened? She's singled out and in being singled out, she's able to share everything to be able to have a blank slate, a clean slate. Every lie, every cover up, everything that she had been hiding is now out in the open. There's so many verses in the Bible that describe this process. James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's an aspect of healing that takes place in the sharing of your sins, confessing your sins to one another, being open, being honest, being vulnerable. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will never prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will find compassion. 
You confess it, you own it, you say it, it is what it is, and you forsake it. You'll find compassion. Ephesians chapter 5, let the deeds that you've done in darkness be exposed to the light. What did this woman want? She wanted to be anonymous, hidden, never exposed. Just let me be healed and let me get back home. But every one of those 12 years, if she had kept those things hidden, every one of those 12 years, the hurt and the pain, the wearing on her conscience of not telling anyone, all of those moments would never have been addressed or dealt with. And so Jesus, in his grace, says, let's let's share those things. Let's bring them to light so that we can cover them with compassion. She tells the whole truth. It's been 12 years. How long do we think the whole truth takes to tell? How long? Somebody say a number. You're going to say 30 minutes. Does it take 30 minutes for this story to be told? Maybe an hour, maybe 15 minutes, maybe two hours. We don't know how long. Maybe we can do interpretation by voting here. We can just figure out how long do we think? We don't know. I like to make it a long period of time because it makes the story more dramatic. So let's say it's an hour. However long it is, you have to remember who's standing in the background during this entire story. Who's standing there? Jairus. And Jairus is looking, saying, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you're helping this woman. I'm so glad you're taking care of her. I'm so glad this is happening. But time out. She has a chronic condition for 12 years. My daughter has an acute condition and she's going to die. Uh, Some of you, I I was able to meet some of you who are are nurses or doctors. Even in your, your medical field, if a doctor experienced in the emergency room, these two individuals walking in at the exact same moment, we've got a woman, an older woman who has a chronic condition for 12 years and this, this little girl in her daddy's arms and the dad is saying, I don't know what's going on, but she's dying. Please help. If a doctor looked and said, um, you know what? You can wait, Jairus. We'll, we'll take the old woman now. That's malpractice. That this Jairus, what is Jairus thinking in this moment? He must be thinking, uh, I don't think you know what you're doing, Jesus. Uh, let her come with us to our house and heal her after you heal my daughter. But don't wait. Don't wait in this moment. How patient do you think he was as he's waiting? Margaret Thatcher said, I'm extremely patient provided I get my own way in the end. (laughs) He doesn't know what's going to happen. This seems to be irrational. Even more than irrational, it's just malpractice. Treat the chronic condition before the acute condition. Jesus turns to the woman and he says to her, Daughter, after telling the whole truth, your faith has made you well. My Bible says made you well. It's literally your faith has saved you. It's not your faith has healed you. It's your faith has saved you. You are saved. The second sentence, go in peace and be healed. That speaks to the affliction. And he says, you have faith that has saved you. Now go and be healed. You've been saved. Now go and be healed. Jairus, throughout the entirety of this conversation, just must be thinking, hurry up. Hurry up. We need to go. When Jesus says, who touched me? Jairus is thinking, that's not important right now. When they find the old woman and he says, can you tell me your whole story? He's thinking, just give me the Cliff Notes version of the story. Please, let's move. We need to go. 
But Jesus will not be hurried. He knows exactly when he is going to act. And while Jairus must be thinking, what if my daughter doesn't make it? His worst fear of losing his girl is realized. Verse 35, while he is still speaking, they come from the house of the synagogue official. Servants walking down the road. You know that Jairus, when he sees the servants, he knows what news they're bringing. If the servants are running with smiles on their faces and you won't believe what happened, then Jairus would have known she's better. But I know these servants aren't walking with that expression on their face. Slowly walking, maybe with tears running down their eyes. Don't bother the master anymore. Don't bother the master. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Just put yourself in Jairus' sandals. What is he thinking? How could you? Why would you? You told me that you were going to come with me. You told me that you could heal her. You gave me false hope. You led me along. Why? Why are you allowing this? And as he probably breaks down in tears, maybe falls to the ground, all hope is gone. Jesus walks over to him, puts his hand on his shoulders and says, do not be afraid any longer. Now, don't be afraid. Just believe. My Bible says only believe. It's, it's in a tense that would say, you have been believing. Keep on doing that. You had faith when you came to me, and now something has placed itself in your life. The circumstances changed such that now your faith is about to leave. But don't. Literally, you could translate it, don't stop believing. I bet you didn't know Journey stole that from the Bible. Don't stop believing. Something's going to happen. Trust me, is what he's saying. Don't hurry me. Be patient. Every culture has a sense of time, right? Every culture has a sense of time. For some, it's impolite to show up on time. You have to show up late. For some, it's impolite to show up on time. You have to show up early. But God's sense of timing will always confound our sense of timing. Always. No matter what culture we are from, His grace rarely, if ever, operates according to our schedule. Right? Okay, God, bring revival on Saturday. No. Okay, God, please save my family member next month. No. Okay, God, please. His grace operates on a completely different time frame. I've heard it said before, God is never late. And amen and amen, he's never late. But I've also experienced the reality that he's hardly ever early, right? He's hardly ever early. He, he waits and he, he asks us to wait with him. In effect, as Jesus is speaking to Jairus, he's speaking to, to you and to me this morning. Do you trust me? Will you trust me? He's speaking over Jairus' shoulder to you and to me. Is there something going on in your life that is causing you to feel like you just need to give up hope? I can't trust him anymore. He would say, don't be afraid. 
Keep the faith that you have had from the beginning and don't let it go. Don't let it go. The reality is, Jesus says, I will not be hurried because I love you. We tend to think he's saying, I will not be hurried even though I love you. This is a trial and I know you're going through a difficult time, but I won't be hurried even though despite the fact that I love you. No, I won't be hurried because I love you. Jesus allows us to go through these moments of waiting and despair and hopelessness because he loves us. So if we try to impose our understanding of what the schedule should be and what the timing should be onto Jesus, then I guarantee you, you will struggle to feel loved by him. If you think this is when you should act, this is when you should operate. Think of Jairus. You should have already been at my house, but you waited. You, you waited and you took care of this uh, older woman's condition. You, you shouldn't have done that. It would be hard to feel loved by Jesus. But here's the key. Precisely because of the delay, both Jairus and the woman are going to get far more than they ever possibly could have hoped for. Be aware that when you go to Jesus for help, you will both give to and get from him way more than you ever bargained for. Think of the older woman. She wanted to go and be healed. Remain anonymous, remain in secret, be healed and get out of there. What did she get? She got Jesus singling her out. Sharing all 12 years, wiping the slate clean, no more, no more secrets, no more hiding, clean conscience, clean slate. She got it all done right then and there. She got way more than healing. She got salvation. Think of Jairus. If you know the end of the story, Jairus wanted his daughter to be healed. And what is he going to get? He's going to get a resurrection. He's going to get a miracle beyond his wildest comprehensions. But both Jairus and the older woman had to give way more than they thought they were going to have to give. And it's the exact same with you and with me. Going to Jesus demands that we will give more than we thought we were going to have to, but we will get far more than we ever hoped or dreamed. Jesus is delaying with Jairus. And it seems to the disciples and it seems to me as I'm reading this that he's delaying for no reason, but they don't have all the facts. And so can I encourage you this morning? If it seems like God is doing something in your life for no good reason. Or you haven't found the reason yet and you're wondering, God, what are you up to? It's simply because you don't have all the pieces. You don't have all the information. If you had all the information, you would understand what he's doing. That's kind of what God said to Job, right? Job goes through immense suffering and Job says, God, what are you doing? Can you answer me? Can you answer for yourself for what you've been doing in my life? Why is this happening? And God in his grace says, hey, let's go to the zoo. Let's go to the zoo. He never answers Job. He never answers him. He just says, let's go to the zoo. Uh, did you make the zebra? Did you make the eagle? Do you know how the whale swims? Do you, do you know these things? And what God is saying in essence is, Job, if I told you the answer, you wouldn't even be able to comprehend it because the answer is infinite like I am and you have a finite brain that cannot handle it. So if God is delaying something in your life at this very moment, are you ready to give up? 
Are you impatient with him? There may just be a crucial factor that you don't have the access to right now. And so the answer is, as it was with Jairus, just trust. Keep on believing. Don't stop. But this is much harder to say than to do. We think, we read these verses and we think, okay, I'll I'll trust. And then in the moment, it just kind of goes out the window. In the moment of the trial, in the moment of the pain, in the moment of the the, the suffering, it just kind of, how how do I trust God now? One of the things that we say a lot in our church uh, is trust your training. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Navy SEALs, um, probably because I could never be one. Just look at me. It's not possible. Um, I'm a big fan of what they do in training. I'm a big fan of what they do to protect our country. And they always talk about uh, the reality of we go through the harshest, strictest training possible. It just beats you up and wears you down. And you go through every conceivable option of what you might experience on the battlefield so that in that moment when the bullets are happening, when they're firing, when the the chaos is ensuing, they always say those three words, just trust your training. So you can react to it, right? You can just, I know how to react in these moments. The same is true with the... Christian life. That's why Paul says we are as soldiers, we're as Christian soldiers, and we need to be trained through the word of God in how we are to respond and how we are to think and how we're to react so that in the moment of the trial, we can trust our training. No, we know God's work and we know his sense of time confounds ours, but we know we don't have all the information and he's working for our good. This is informative for us on two levels. Uh, practically and theologically. Practically, if you remember in uh, chapter 4, the disciples in the boat, they say, Teacher, do you even care that we're perishing? Do you even care? You're not worrying with us, Jesus. Your amount of worry and anxiety does not fit the situation, right? Why aren't you struggling to worry with us? We, We tend to do this, even with relationships. I have an issue that's going on that's so difficult and I am just anxious about it. And you have somebody who goes, oh, that's okay. I'll be praying for you. Or hey, it could be worse. And you think you're, you don't understand your level of anxiety of what I'm going through is not matching my level of anxiety. And then we tend to think you don't care about me. You need to worry with me. Maybe Jairus is thinking the same thing. You're not, you're not moving fast enough, Jesus. You're not worrying in these moments. He says, just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have to live the rest of my life without my daughter. Don't be afraid. But this informs us practically to know, you know what? We, we don't need Jesus to freak out with us when we're freaking out. It's good that he doesn't. And theologically, it, it informs us with the reality that we assume a lot. I think if we're honest, we assume that if God truly loved us, he wouldn't let us suffer. I think we tend to believe if God really loved us, he wouldn't let us suffer. We tend to assume that if you love somebody, you will keep them from suffering. You won't let them go through suffering or pain. But we know reasonably that's not reality. I took my daughter when she was a little baby. I took her to the doctor. And uh, we did a little checkup and everything was just great, normal and And then the doctor said, okay, we're going to give her her shots now. And 
I thought, oh man, I totally forgot we're doing shots today. So here I am holding my daughter and she just has a smile and she's looking into my eyes with that, that gaze of, I trust you, dad, and I know you'll never let anything bad happen to me. And, and then in comes the doctor with these syringes that, whoa, that's way bigger than I thought. Do you need that? Is that for the horse outside? Like you don't need that for my daughter. And, and in that moment, the doctor fills it up, sticks it in her arm. And those eyes just staring at me, dad, you're the best. Just turn to this dark questioning. What have you done? What have you, what are you, we we let our kids go through painful moments because we love them. God does the exact same thing. He's our heavenly father. He is a good father. And so he allows us to go through pain, not because he enjoys it. This is where I think we have a misconception because we believe and trust and know that God is sovereign. We, we tend to think that he's mechanical in his sovereignty, that he just goes, yeah, you're going to go through trial. It's going to stink, but you know what? I'll be there with you. And the Bible says he holds every tear that we cry in a bottle. He gave us a command that we should weep with those who weep, right? In the church, we weep with those who weep. Where does that command come from? It comes from his nature, his character. He weeps with you when you're weeping. He does not say, I'm glad that this trial is going to make you squirm. He weeps with us. He says, I know this is going to be hard. And I I wish I didn't even have to let you go through this. And I'll be with you every step of the way. Psalm 23, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear because he is with us. When we can't see him, when we can't even feel his presence, he's there with us. So practically, it helps us understand we don't need God to worry with us. He's got a plan. Theologically, it reminds us we should never draw a line from our circumstances to the character of God. We should never think because my circumstances are bad, that means God doesn't care. No, we have to draw a line from God's character to our circumstances. We know God loves us. Therefore, whatever he's allowing us to go through, it's not because he doesn't love us. It is because he loves us and we can trust him. Even in the midst of waiting. It serves a purpose. The bad things that happen to us are not only not outside of God's sovereignty, they're a part of his perfect plan for us. We may not know what God is doing in our suffering, but we can trust that he is doing something. You could write down Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. He is interceding for us daily. You could write down uh, Philippians 1, 6. He is uh, the one who began the good work and he's faithful to complete it. He's doing that work in and through. You could write down Philippians 2, 13. He is the one who is working right now for his good pleasure in your life. You could write down Ephesians 2, 10. He is the one who created every good work for you to walk in. And he's manufacturing those things for you and I to walk in. You could write down, uh, obviously, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He causes everything that you go through to work together for good, for your good and for his glory. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you can claim that promise as your own. You can own that. That should be a life verse for you. And if you have a God, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you have a God that you're wrestling with. And you're wrestling because you're saying, God, you could have prevented this. You could have stopped this. You're powerful enough to have done something and you let it happen. And here would be my encouragement. If you have a God that's big enough, strong enough, powerful enough to get mad at because he didn't stop something from happening or he allowed something to happen, then you have a God who's big enough, strong enough, powerful enough that that's so far beyond what you and I could comprehend. We probably don't understand what he's up to. 
If we know that he's big enough, strong enough, and powerful enough to stop the trial, then he's also big enough, strong enough, more powerful we could possibly imagine to have purposes that are beyond our wildest dreams. Elizabeth Elliot, who was a missionary who had her husband and uh, three other individuals killed uh, on the mission field. They were murdered because they were sharing the gospel, speared to death. And she stayed in that tribe. She continued to share the gospel. That gospel the, the gospel went forth in that tribe and all the tribe's people ended up getting saved. She wrote this. God is God. And since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. It's beyond our comprehension. And that's why Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just keep on believing. Verse 37. He allows no one to accompany him except for Peter and James and John and the brother, the brother of James. They come to the house of the synagogue official and he sees a great commotion. People loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at Jesus. Of course they're laughing. He says, she's not dead. She's just asleep. He said, no, no, you, if you had been here earlier, she'd just be sleeping. Because you delayed, she's dead. They laughed, but he puts them all out. He takes the child's father and mother and his own companions, and he entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I, I say to you, get up. The reason why Mark gives us the Aramaic Talitha kum and then the translation is he wants us to understand this is a very endearing term. This isn't little girl, get up. It's, it's written that way. But in our vernacular, it would be like me in the morning. If I go to, to get my daughter up for uh, church, she goes to church with me in the morning. Sometimes she hasn't woken up yet and I'll open her door and I don't say to her, little girl, get up, right? I, I say, hey, hey, sweetie, kind of rub the hair out of her eyes. Hey, sweetheart, rub her back. How'd you sleep? Good morning. That's, that's this term right here. It's a term of endearment. It's a term that a father would say to a daughter. Hey, sweetheart. Hey, precious. Hey, hey, little one. And immediately what happens? Verse 42, the little girl gets up and begins to walk. Now, my, my Bible says walk. There's three Greek words for walking. It's kind of like a slow, medium, fast. Uh, this is the fast word for walking. This is, this is zipping around like a 12-year-old would do. We're going to find out she's 12 years old. This is, this is the kind of walking that a 12-year-old would do. This is some of the walking that some of your kids were doing as the setup crew was here. And you're just running around. This is what my kids do every Sunday morning in the back of church. They're running around. This is what she's doing. When Jesus takes care of the problem that's going on, he not only takes care of the problem, he takes care of all of its effects. She's... She's died and Jesus in his grace has raised her from the dead. We would expect, you know what? Just sit on the bed for a little while. You, you just came out of death, right? Just sit there, maybe take a nap. 
But she just gets up and immediately starts running around. This is the exact same formula we see throughout the entirety of this gospel. In the gospel of Mark, remember there's a man with a withered hand. It's stuck. It's been fused together. And Jesus says, uh, be healed. And it's, it's stretched out and he can move his hand instantly. No physical therapy needed. He does the same thing with Peter's mother-in-law. When he heals Peter's mother-in-law who is dying from a fever, he heals her. And immediately she gets up and does what every mother-in-law is going to do. Are you hungry? You're hungry. Let me feed you. And so she makes a meal and she feeds everybody in her house. Uh, it's amazing what Jesus does. His power is so much further than a doctor's power. That's why he's clearly performing miracles, because it's not just you'll feel better in a month. It's instantly the effects are gone. So she runs around because Mark says in verse 42, she's running around because she's 12 years old. She's doing what a 12 year old is going to do. And immediately they were all completely astounded. Of course they are. They just saw a little girl who was dead be raised from the dead. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. I love that. Number one, he says, don't let anybody know about this because I want to be known as the savior of the world, not just a miracle worker. And I want to be able to get out of this city before everybody's saying, you know, give me all of your uh, diseased people and and people that need healing. I, I want to be known primarily for the preaching of the gospel. He's done this on several occasions. But I also love how practical our Savior is. He says, she just died. I'm sure that makes you hungry, right? Please give her something to eat. And that informs our understanding of this entire passage, right? God knows to the tiniest detail of you need some food right now. Therefore, he knew with the the woman with the issue of blood... You need healing in a way that you don't want it, but you need all of these things to be exposed so that I can cover all of it. And to Jairus, you need more than just a healing. You need to see a resurrection. So, brothers and sisters, are you trying to hurry Jesus this morning? Are you impatient in the waiting? I I can tell you from my own experience, I, I have been impatient in the waiting time and time and time again. If we had more time, I'd love to, to share with you a story of uh, one of the bigger trials that my wife and I went through. Our youngest son, when he was just a few days old, and we found out that he had uh, a heart problem and he had to have open heart surgery. And, and uh, he's totally fine now. God, in his kindness, just being gentle and gracious with us, uh, he uh, allowed our, our youngest son, Tyler, to, to be fixed. He, the heart surgery worked perfectly. It looks like he never even had the problem that he had with his aorta. Um, But in the middle of those moments of waiting, wondering, I'll never forget the one of the harder moments of my life. And it's interesting the way that God allows people to go through it in different ways. My wife struggled at the very beginning when she found out and then God gave her a peace that just was supernatural, was beyond understanding. For me, I had that peace all the way up until Friday morning when we wheeled our son into the operating room. And that was the moment where I just thought, this, this is it. I may never see my son again. And brothers and sisters, I know that you've gone through trials. I know you've gone through suffering where you have gone through moments where God did not give you your child back. God did not give you your spouse back. God said in answer to your prayer, It's a no. 
and I'll be your sustaining grace. We try to push God and hurry him. So how do we trust our training? How do we, what do we cling to? How are we to think in these moments? If God is delaying something in your life and you're ready to give up, maybe you're impatient with him. There may be a crucial factor about the trial that you don't understand, you don't have access to. So what do we do? The answer is what Jesus said to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Keep believing. And who are we to believe in? We are to believe in the Son of God. We are to believe in the one who gave his life for you and for me. We are to believe in the Father who sent his Son to be crucified and to rise from the dead. He, he's the one who gave his Son for us. John 3.16, he so loved us that he gave. So the giving of his Son is the reality that we cling to, the hope that we cling to. In the midst of the trial, when we go, God, do you care? Do you even know what's going on? Do you even love me in these moments? We go back to the cross and say, well, of course you loved us. Romans 8.32, God did not spare, the Father did not spare his only Son, but freely gave him up for us all. And because of that, Paul's argument is, how then will he withhold things from us? Why would God ever withhold anything from us when he's freely given us the most difficult thing to give? So in those moments of trials and suffering, we cling to God has given us the hardest gift possible. God's given us the most difficult thing to ever to do, to give the gift of his son. So, of course, he loves us. The trials are not because he doesn't love us. The trials are because he loves us and he's working something in and through us. If there's a storm that's raging in your life, you can trust Jesus because he says, be still and the storm is still. Is there demonic influence in your life? You can trust Jesus because he says, come out and the demon's gone. Is there a disease that afflicts you? You can trust Jesus because he can say, be healed and it's gone. Is it death that has overtaken or overshadowed your life? You can trust Jesus because whether in this life or absolutely confidently and assuredly in the next, he will say, arise, arise, get up. And then not only will he meet practical needs that we have of giving us a glorified body and all those different aspects of being with him for all of eternity, but he's also going to welcome us to the marriage supper of the lamb. And just as he said to Jairus's daughter, you've been raised now eat. He's going to say to you and to me who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and not in our own goodness to get us to heaven. When he raises us on that last day, he's going to say, you're raised now eat at the marriage supper of the lamb.